0: News, weather, traffic, money,
1: politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now.
2: This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we've been very focused on the number of new cases of COVID-19 here in BC and concerns that, you know, what happened over Christmas is going to bring an uptick in cases. We're watching that very closely. Three o'clock this afternoon, we'll be getting an update. But let's also talk about huge increases that they are seeing in other countries, particularly in the United Kingdom. Christina Pagel is a clinical research director at University College London, and she joins us this morning to talk about that very concerning trend that they are seeing there. Christina, thank you for joining us. Hi. What is the COVID-19 situation like in the United Kingdom right now?
3: Um, <laughs> really bad. <clears throat> I mean, basically... Um, it's just out of control here. And it's uh, it's quite scary, actually, because, you know, a lot of the country has been in the equivalent of reasonably harsh lockdown type restrictions. So, you know, no hospitality, no shops, no household mixing. Um, and it doesn't seem to be making a difference. I mean, I think, I think that that's what's most frightening to me. So London has been in these kind of restrictions for over two weeks and cases are still going up really quickly hospitalizations are going really up up really quickly it's much worse now than it was at the spring peak and there's no sign that it's getting better so that's <laughs> I right it's it's just it's just really it's just really bad news and it does seem to be um, a combination that we had high case levels to start with and then this new variant is just making it very very difficult to get them down
2: yeah that's what i was wondering so is this new variant that we've heard about is that one of the reasons why there are so many cases and it's spreading so quickly
3: yeah, because you can really you can really see how it kind of started in in the southeast of the country, um, and took about three or four weeks to become the dominant strain. So in in London and, and the southeast of England, something like eighty to ninety percent of new cases of the new strain. Um, but that is now spreading and growing across the rest of the country. So um, I think now in in England as a whole over 60% of new cases, there's a new strain. So it, it does genuinely seem to be kind of taking over yeah, um, and be more infectious. And, and that just means that even though the same kind of mitigations work against, you know, distancing, hand-washing, ventilation, um, you have to do them much, much more rigorously, get the same effect, and that's, and that's proving really difficult.
2: And, and what, what is the hospital situation like right now? They must be filled to overflowing.
3: Yeah, they are, yeah particularly in the southeast, um, there's only one region in England that currently isn't above where it was at peak um, and what so basically they're starting to have to cancel all non-urgent other things now um, they're trying to open new ICUs wherever they can um, but the problem is that we can't make more staff and you know, NHS staff already are still really exhausted from wave one. They never got to stop yeah. because the summer was spent trying to catch up on all the backlog. And now they're doing it again. And now also partly because it's more transmissible, a lot of people are getting sick. So there's a lot of sickness now. Um, and and we're also starting to run low on oxygen. And it's not so much that we don't have oxygen. It's that, you know, hospitals have an infrastructure, so you got oxygen piped around to every bed. But they're using unprecedented amounts of it and it's just breaking the you know, the pipes just can't cope with it. And that means the hospital's having to declare oxygen emergencies. And that's never happened. Like ever. Um, so well well no, it's never been a limited resource before. And and so now they're effectively having to ration how much oxygen they can give people. I mean, that's really a frightening situation to be in and um And unfortunately, I don't know how we're going to cope over the next few weeks. It's going to be really bad.
2: Christina, what happened then with the lockdown measures? And I know because I've been reading the British newspapers all along and I know that they've had their different tier levels and they have put different regions into lockdown. Is it that people just didn't pay attention to the rules? Like, were there fines? Were were they cracking down? What happened?
3: There hasn't been a lot of cracking down. Um, I think one, one of the big issues is that the way it spreads um, is through mixing, um, and although household mixing now is banned in the whole of England, so you can't <clears throat> you can't have any friends in your house at all. Um, but obviously, that's not enforceable, right? You're not going to have the police going around to your house checking who's in your kitchen. So, um, so that's part of it. I think um, part of it is is that people. It just doesn't feel as scary as it did in in March to to kind of the, the average person because most people under the age of 60 actually don't use hospitals really um, so it, it, they, can't, they can't necessarily see the, the danger of having hospitals that are full so I think that's part of it and part of it is, is just that it is more infectious and so I think we've got used to the level of, of behaviour that we need to keep it under control but that's no longer good enough and I think that's kind of the, the other issue.
2: Right, so that makes it even worse. So, you, you do you feel like not enough people were essentially following the rules or, or thinking about this?
3: Well, I mean, it, it's hard just to blame it on people. I mean, it's also about government response. And I think, you know, our, our government has been quite slow to act. It's still being slow to act. It kind of takes these incremental things and then keeps saying things like, oh, it's safe to do this, or when it's safe to relax for Christmas, and when it wasn't. And so, there has been kind of confusing messaging. Um, and and so I think, you know, it's difficult to, to blame the public when the communication hasn't been there either. When I mean, you have to give people the right information to behave safely. And yeah. I just feel like that hasn't happened either. So
2: lack of a consistent message.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: All right. Well, Christina, listen, best of luck. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, and good luck in Canada. Thank you. We (laughs) we need it too. That's Christina Pagel, Clinical Research Director at University College in London. The UK is in pretty dire straits right now. In fact, the um, First Minister for Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has just announced a few moments ago that a nationwide lockdown is going to be introduced in Scotland from midnight tonight. And um, she told Scottish Parliament that there's going to be a legal requirement for people to stay at home for the rest of January. So that's as strict of a lockdown as we saw earlier in the year, like in the spring, right? When we were first very concerned about this. And in Scotland, they are going into that mode as of midnight for them tonight. And that just gives you an idea of where they are at right now with case levels and infections increasing and strain on the hospital system. As you heard Christina point out, the lack of oxygen in the hospital system that they've never had happen before. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about what's happening down in the United States today. So you've got all 10 living former defense secretaries, names like Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld and others, putting their names on a letter telling President Trump it is time to go. Well, they seem to be right to worry at this point. Over the weekend, the Washington Post newspaper published a bombshell of a report related to the president's efforts to try to get, you know, the vote overturned in a state like Georgia. For more on this, we're joined now by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And sounding like it's starting out the same way 2020 did, actually. Uh, Tell me about this Washington Post report.
4: Uh, well, look, the phone call between President Trump uh, and the Georgia Secretary of State, amongst others, uh, goes to show that the president is not all that concerned over election fraud and is simply concerned uh, with an ability to remain in office despite the fact that he was voted out. This is an hour-long phone call that really kind of goes deep into the depths of the conspiracy theory world that has been circulating around alt-right uh, social media networks for the last several months. And it really goes to show that President Trump is not basing his, his visions on reality. And it's simply on the noise that's surrounding him.
2: So what does that mean? then? on this phone call, uh, he is heard essentially just saying, find me some votes.
4: He is saying that, look, he's saying that he and his crew have found tens of thousands of votes that would ultimately give him the win. Remember, it's been two months since the election and they've not brought any of that information forward. So we'll see is simply a it, we don't have it. Uh, But number two, he's asking for a very specific number of votes, which is the number that Joe Biden won by. Plus, Donald Trump is saying, just find me one more to give me the win. What he is doing here is in a sen- is essentially asking for Georgia election officials to bend to simply make him the winner of the election. And there are questions now as to whether this violates Georgia state law, which says you cannot interfere with a state or federal election.
2: Right. So what kind of pushback did he get on this phone call?
4: Well, look, he got pushback from uh, from the Georgia secretary of state who is actually being praised right now for having a backbone, for having some steel and actually standing up to the president's theories by pushing back by saying, look, your information is wrong. We have done three recounts and you are still the loser of this election. And anything you're asking us to do is not grounded or based on on anything in reality. Uh, and he said this over and over, this phone call is nearly Donald Trump talking for the entire hour with the odd pushback here and there from Georgia election uh, officials. Uh, it was deranged. It's delusional. Uh, And and there is now a fracture, a big fracture forming in the GOP. Right. And so when did this phone call take place? It took place on Saturday. uh, And the only reason this tape was released on Sunday is because President Trump provoked it. Brad Raffensperger said, we are not going to release this unless the president kind of gets into our hair. And he twisted their arm by putting a baseless tweet out on Sunday morning. And Raffensperger basically was backed into a corner and said, we need to defend ourselves. Here's the reality.
2: So they're the ones who taped the conversation.
4: They are the ones who taped the conversation, and it's because they've now come out to say a few weeks ago, Lindsey Graham was pushing the same move to try and have them overturn the election during a phone call. And they said, well, look, if this is going to keep happening, we better start recording it so we actually have something to back ourselves up with.
2: Well, smart move on that one, Uh, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's a lot of people inside the Republican Party who oftentimes won't stand up to the president. We're seeing that with the dozens of people who are intending to object on Wednesday to Biden certification. You now have a a fracture, like I said, that is showing that there are some people who are either the moderates or the true conservatives or just want to see america's kind of foundation stay as is say mr president it's time
2: okay so what kind of a reaction is this uh getting would you say from within the republican party is this changing anything
4: well, look, there are some people within the Republican Party, within the Senate and within the House that are saying that the president's phone call with Georgia election officials did not help either with the, just the fracture in the party or with the fact that there's an election in Georgia tomorrow, fearing that this could uh, depress uh, Republican turnout or could kind of uh, increase the number of Democrats who are going to turn out. There's fear with, uh, amongst Republicans that President Trump in his final 16 days in office is simply tearing up the ground and burning the bridges behind him.
2: I guess it was also surprising to people because there was this impression that oh, he's just going to golf for the last couple of weeks and then eventually he'll go. That doesn't seem like the case at all.
4: No, and especially since we saw that the president came home from his New Year's trip from Mar-a-Lago early, uh, there was a sense that he may be up to something. And look, he, he, he has spent the last two months living in a false reality that he won the election, and he's continuing to push this. The problem is he's now putting himself into dangerous territory where you have some Democrats saying, look, this phone call sounds exactly like that phone call with Ukraine that led to him being impeached. Likely in 16 days, not enough time to impeach him, but it's a conversation that's coming back up again.
2: OK, and what else is happening this week? Because
4: this is also a critical week. It's a critical week. Number one, a the elections in Georgia tomorrow will determine the uh, control of the Senate. Number two, on Wednesday, Joe Biden will be certified by the Congress uh, to to become the next president of the United States. Mike Pence is going to have to stand before a joint session and say that, that that Joe Biden won the election in November. Despite the fact that there are objections from the Republican Party, they don't control both chambers. The House is ultimately going to be the one that determines this. On top of that, President Trump is calling a massive rally in Washington where there are fears that this could kind of uh, boil over into a, a dangerous amount of tensions. Okay, busy week for you. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: And we want to talk about long-term care homes here this morning because outbreaks are still happening, right, all over the province. Families that have lost loved ones in one of those long-term care homes, they want more information about how the virus is still entering those care homes after all this time and everything that we have learned. Now, that's going to be a hot topic this afternoon when there is the briefing with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix, Right now, though, let's talk with Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning, Terry.
5: Good morning, Simi.
2: I think a lot of people have these questions. For instance, the story out of the South China Morning Post with all of those cases is shocking. What is going on?
5: Well, uh, like in the community, uh, we're going to see things get worse before they get better. And as we see the prevalence of the virus in the community increase that spills over into long-term care because we simply haven't done enough to keep the virus out of these vulnerable settings. And now we're seeing cases in independent seniors living as well as long-term care. It's uh, it's getting pretty scary.
2: Did the BC care providers know about this particular outbreak with the 51 people dead at the Waterford community home?
5: Uh, 51 positive uh, at Waterford. We were just hearing about that this morning, Uh Not everyone that's in seniors' independent living or long-term care operators are members of our association. For instance, Little Mountain, where there's a significant outbreak at the moment, are not members of our association. But, you know, one of the concerns we have is we haven't really had direct information from the Ministry of Health or health authorities on where these outbreaks are occurring and the extent of the outbreaks. Uh, It seems very difficult to get information and um, it, it makes it hmm. difficult for us to assess the situation in that vacuum of information.
2: Was it easier to get information earlier in the pandemic as opposed to now?
5: It was actually, um, and I know that the Seniors Advocate was receiving more information than, than that office is receiving today. Uh, I'm not sure why uh, the decision has been made to to withhold this information. It's available in, in other provinces, uh, but it's clear that... Um, you know, the, the government is, is holding this information close to its chest for reasons that escape me.
2: Now, what about the vaccination schedule for people who work? Obviously, they're a priority, right? I think everybody can agree on that. But how is that working?
5: Well, uh, we had a bit of a pause uh, around Christmas, which caused some, uh, some concern, particularly in Northern Health, where uh, the virus is really on the rise. Uh, but uh, my understanding is that they're, they're back and, and also now taking the vaccine Two uh, nursing homes uh, once you know they have the logistics worked out, they have permission to move the vaccine, and that'll make it a much easier task uh, to uh, to have people uh, vaccinated both workers and residents but what is concerning to me is the vaccine hesitancy that we 're seeing um, some really? operators report that up to fifty percent of their staff are concerned about getting the vaccine, and what? you know we haven 't heard what the plan is uh, should that happen are, are these Folks going to be tested every day uh, are they going to be allowed to work on the front lines and and so far we've we've heard nothing
2: that doesn't make i know people just shake our heads when we hear that right because they work in long-term care homes aren't they concerned about getting covid nineteen and passing it on to very vulnerable people
5: yes uh it, it is baffling but um as a new vaccine i suppose uh, you know and there's misinformation out there and um many of the uh, people who work on the front lines of long-term care are women in childbearing uh, bearing uh, years and so you know they have a legitimate concern that the vaccine isn't approved for use in pregnancy um so all of these things are concerns and it's, it's our job and the government's job I think to reassure people and encourage as many as possible to uh, to receive the
2: vaccine is it possible then are you asking the government to mandate that for long-term care home workers
5: well, uh, you know we used to have a mandate that uh, you had to have the flu vaccine or wear a mask in healthcare settings, and that was overturned uh, at the uh, request of the uh, nurses union and uh, so i and, and Bonnie Henry has said that they will not mandate vaccines, so that's fine, but then what do you have uh, in place for a plan to mitigate uh, you know infections in long term care will Will these people be tested regularly? The government has failed to use testing. Uh, to screen staff in long-term care. uh, Unbelievably, they don't test residents that are being transferred from acute care to long-term care. uh, And we know that this has seeded some of the outbreaks that we've seen.
2: Now, I heard about this as well from a friend of mine who works within the system. So let's explain that to people. So if somebody has been in acute care or if they've been hospitalized and they're moving into a long-term care home, they're not being tested for COVID nineteen, before they move into that long term care home,
5: correct. Uh, unless they have symptoms, and yet, of course, that's crazy. If you come to Canada now from another country, you have to have a, a COVID test. So, taking people, you know, into the general population, we don't, uh, we, we, we force people to have a test. But if you're putting people into the most vulnerable setting, there's no requirement to have a test. It, it just that's... is unfathomable. So, I, I just can't understand it.
2: Well, that's mind boggling to me, that we would do that. What, Terry, what about families here? Like, what if families want to know if their their family member's caregiver has been vaccinated or not? Do they have any rights at this point to say that?
5: I don't believe they, they have the right to that information for privacy reasons, uh, Simi, but again, I think it would be reassuring for them to know that if long-term care workers did refuse uh, the vaccine, that, that they would be tested on a regular basis to ensure that their loved ones in care were not exposed. Of course, once the residents are all vaccinated, the, the fear goes down substantially. Um, but, you know, it, it there's just a lack of information. People don't know what the strategy is and Hopefully today, um, this afternoon, we'll, we'll hear more about um, about these vulnerable settings and what the government plans to do to protect them.
2: But at this point, what you've said is kind of alarming, is that even if we prioritize getting the vaccine into long-term care homes, a number of people who work there don't want to get it.
5: That's, uh, that is what we're hearing from operators directly and Safe Care BC, which is the organization that looks after health and safety for those in the contracted Sector of uh, seniors care uh, did a survey and they found about um, 15% would refuse the vaccine and about 28% were hesitant. Uh, So if you combine those numbers, uh, that makes it challenging to ensure that you've got enough protection on the front lines uh, to protect uh, vulnerable residents.
2: That's crazy. Well, Terry, I have a feeling we're going to be talking to you again. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks,
5: Sydney. Thank you.
2: Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Much of what we just talked about, I know, will be the subject of the press conference coming up this afternoon. But it is just, I don't know, baffling to me, some of those things that we just heard, that you're transferring a patient from an acute care situation into a long-term care home and you're not testing them for COVID-19 before you do that, I just, I don't understand how that could happen. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I regularly get emails from people who advocate for more rail availability in Metro Vancouver, like especially the idea of a rail line that would stretch from Chilliwack to Whistler, like the West Coast Express, but a much bigger scale to really ramp up that availability for people out there. It's a neat idea, right? And we've waited around for feasibility studies to be done on it. Well, some people have taken matters into their own hands like a group of students out at UBC who have gone ahead and done their own feasibility study on this. Fourth-year geography student Sean Rufas joins us now to talk about that project. Sean, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So how did you guys get started on this?
6: Uh, So it was for a class, but we were all, one of our group members is from Whistler, I'm from Abbotsford, so we've always wondered about the rail too, and it didn't seem like anyone was doing anything, so we just kind of did the study with the limited knowledge we had on rail and looked some more into what was possible and just tried our best to come up with a great map that shows some possible things, our routes to get people's imagination going.
2: Okay. And how did the project turn out? Uh,
6: it turned out really well for the most part. Uh, we used uh, all the yeah knowledge that we had and uh, we got a, a map of a route that could go up through one of the more challenging parts, uh, not along the Sea to Sky Corridor, but up through the Capilano Valley. uh, And then also looking at some of the social impacts that the the rail would have in the valley as well. Well, you, Uh,
2: you must have done okay on it because here you are talking about it in the media, right? So you got some attention on it. So tell me about the route that you guys decided on here.
6: Uh, absolutely. So uh, a lot of the time uh, for the route was spent looking at the environmental challenges as far as uh, slope and different species at risk, as well as watersheds. And uh, there were a lot of people that were questionable about or questioning the possibility of going along the Sea Sky Corridor because of existing transit routes. So uh, we decided our, our route showed up through the Capilano Valley would probably be the most uh, effective and have the lowest uh, resistance, I guess, given those variables. But it is still challenging because the slope is quite intense uh, up in those areas.
2: Right. And did you look at stops? Like how where, where would this train stop? What would the distance be? So we're building
6: off of the work of the Mountain Valley Express uh, proponents who already looked at a couple of uh, cities that the line would stop at. It was harder to come up with the exact area for stops just because it would require a lot of social uh, consultation uh, along those lines. So the environmental uh, possibility of, of where the rail could go in those more treacherous regions was a bit easy for, easier for us to do. Um, but definitely further down the line, hopefully people uh, are more inspired uh, to look into even those more nitty gritty um components as well.
2: So you're hoping then that this would kind of kickstart something?
6: Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just creating conversations around rail, uh, whether it's uh, interpersonally between you and me right now or with the government so that, you know, a lot more people are on board with this really, I think, long term vision, um, but one that I think is really important for the region.
2: It sounds pretty cool. Sean, is there somewhere that we can go to read this or find out more?
6: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have a blog, but it was probably the link is a bit long. So um, if you, there's a CTV article um, with a link to the study as well, where you can look at our findings more. And then there's also www.mkvx.vision. Okay. Um, they have a lot more kind of inspiring stuff along the uh, the good the, the sides of rail as well okay. as where the stations might go.
2: All right, Sean, thank you so much for your time.
6: Okay, awesome. Have a good one.
2: You too. That's Sean Rufas, a fourth year geography student at UBC, one of a number of students who took on this project on doing a feasibility study on the idea of Chilliwack to Whistler having a rail line, something that's been talked about, I feel like, for a long time. But what would that actually look like? This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, man, that song is so perfect for what we are about to talk about. It's all of these politicians who think that their vacation and their priorities are more important than the rest of us out there. So on the federal front on this, two Liberal MPs have now resigned from their government and House of Commons roles after they admitted to recently, like we are talking in the last two weeks, traveling overseas, despite or traveling internationally, I should say, despite strict travel restrictions, because of the spread of COVID-19. So people who traveled in the summer, I mean, there were some apparently MPs who did that different situation, things were a little bit looser back in the summer. But in the last month, that has not been the case. Look at the numbers from Ontario again this morning, just released a few minutes ago. Uh, again, more than 3,200 cases announced this morning. And so that's why I think this particular story is resonating so much with Canadians from coast to coast. They hate seeing their politicians treat the rules differently than what the way they apply to us. Now, I know that our Global News Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken, has been tracking all of these politicians for that. He joins us this morning to talk more about that. Good morning, David.
1: Morning, Simi. How are you doing? And you're right. And I think the, the big issue, I think, Canadians, once they poke into the very different uh, circumstances of all this travel, is what is non-essential travel? So in Alberta, for example, next door, we have a municipal affairs minister, Tracy Allard. She went to Hawaii because that's what her family does every year. I think a lot of people go, that's not really essential. You're in Ontario, you probably heard. Rod Phillips, used to be finance minister, was vacationing in the Caribbean. It's not really essential, and he had to pay for that by resigning his job. But over the weekend, we learned that we now have four uh, federal MPs who left the country over the Christmas break. And so you tell me if this is essential. Here's one, Camel Care, liberal MP from Brampton, who I should point out, she had COVID herself back in the spring. She recovered. She's a nurse, and she has been volunteering and helping out, uh, you know, all nurses on deck in Branton. She knows the public health rules, but in December, she traveled to Seattle, which is not exactly a place you go for a tan, I understand, in the middle of December. She went to Seattle uh, to to participate in a memorial service for a recently uh, deceased relative. So she came back, and she went through the 14-day quarantine, and and because she didn't tell uh, her party's leadership, she has resigned from her, her position as parliamentary secretary. The other liberal MP, uh, uh, Samir Zuberi from Montreal, he went to Delaware. Again, not exactly a sunspot. Uh, and again, there was an ailing relative that he wanted to visit, uh, His, I think it was his mother's uh, father or mother in Delaware. Um, he, too, didn't tell his leadership, and he, too, has resigned from some parliamentary responsibilities. The other ones we knew about, Nikki Ashton, the NDP MP from Manitoba. She went to Greece, again, an ailing relative. And then Ron Leipert, the conservative from Calgary, he owned property, owns property in California, Palm Desert, and he said he had to do essential property maintenance uh, there. So he, he left. He did tell his leader, Erno O'Toole. So there's four... The, the, the MPs, um, by the way, the Prime Minister, no, he did not leave the country, did not leave, they just stayed in the national capital region with his family. So did Aaron O'Toole. So did, and there has been no travel by any cabinet minister outside the country um, since March, except for our foreign affairs minister. So just four MPs for different reasons.
2: Right, but different
1: than. And obviously going to Hawaii or Las Vegas or
2: right. but New none Mexico. of none of those excuses sound like anything that the rest of us aren't also going through. Do you know what I mean? So I've well, had a similar situation. Thing- I've gone to a memorial service on Zoom during all of this. I have a relative who passed away. i I couldn't participate in any of that, but I don't know why they think that they're so different.
1: Well, and again, that this is where each person's going to be coming to some different you know different conclusions or or, or whatever. You're absolutely right. A lot of Canadians saying, Hey, wait a minute. I can't do this. Michelle Rempel, who's the health critic for the conservatives, the MP, you know, she had a very sort of public, uh, you know, message on Twitter, you know, and she was pretty emotional because she has a uh, mother in law who's stage four breast cancer and she could not travel. She's in Calgary. Her mother-in-law and her husband are in Oklahoma. And um, and she was pretty upset about that. She feels that she can't go because of the political backlash that she would have. And the uh, quote media witch hunt if she traveled, but there are Canadians who again it's non essential travel is is the prohibition, and if you are traveling for I guess in some cases for funerals I'm not sure about memorials that there there may be a gray area. But you're right, other people are just doing it well. I have yeah. to do it via Zoom, or we will have our memorial at a time this COVID nineteen thing ends. I think that it's pretty clear in the case of again Premier Kenny and and in Ontario you know, Premier Ford. Ministers who leave to just get a tan in a hot spot, mm. that's not a good thing. Yeah. And Kenny's got eight, eight MLAs who are in Crazy. Vegas, Hawaii, California. One is in Mexico, and they still can't get a hold of him to tell them to come home. Um, and no new, none of his opposition, uh, none of the New Democrats went south. So you've got, you've got an, a caucus of eight very well-tanned MLAs. that Oof. There was no other reason other than they wanted to go get warm over the holidays. That's yeah. That's think, not a great optic.
2: Do you think this causes the biggest problem then for Premier Kenny out of all the other politicians and party leaders, premiers across the province? He's got a problem on his hands here.
1: He does. And, and uh, you know, I think we're going to hear more about uh, some potential fallout today. I mean, one of the big issues here, too, is, is his top aide, his chief of staff, was in England when uh, we found out about this new COVID variant, right? This, this, this nasty, uh, nastier one. And so Canada blocked all travel from England. You can't come in from England. We don't want you. And he got around that by traveling back to Alberta by going through the United States. And so, you know, again, Kenny's getting a lot of heat for that. So I think, yes, he's under some fire. Um, I've been phoning around federally. Are any of these MPs, you know, are they going to suffer anymore? Probably not, because there is a feeling that at some point you sort of get into a race to the bottom kind of approach um, some conservatives i 've been talking to think that the reasons for camel Kara going to this this memorial in Seattle or or Samir, Samir Zubera traveling for to visit an ailing relative um, that 's okay as long as you follow all the protocols and do it okay that 's some conservatives now you 're right other Canadians will go i don 't care you, The rule was stay at home, and you know we have to use technology to keep in touch with people so we 'll see where it goes but i don 't see this being a big issue. Federally, at this point in time, it's a much bigger issue. I think right now in uh, the Alberta provincial capital.
2: Oh no, kidding! All right, thank you so much, David. Okay, thanks to me. Cheers. Cheers. Appreciate your time. That's David Aiken, our global news chief political correspondent. Yeah, I, w- I would say Premier Jason Kenney probably has the biggest problem with this right now. As David pointed out, you know, for some federal politicians. Maybe they felt that that was extenuating circumstances because it involved, you know, sick or dying relatives. Certainly there's a lot of sympathy for that. Uh, But in the case of the politicians in Alberta, the vast majority of them are, I wanted some sun. And that is not going over very well. Try reading some of the Alberta newspapers today and some of the columns. I did that yesterday and late last night. Boy, it is not a good mood in that province right now towards Jason Kenney's government. So there'll be more to come on that. Now, lots of classes have moved online, particularly at the college and university level. And unfortunately, one of the side effects of that has been some stories in the news about students that have been caught cheating in some of those post secondary institutions. That is disappointing, right? It should have been difficult for students to do that, but they are also finding ways to get around that. So, how do we deal with that situation? Well, I want to talk to a couple of people who think that this is actually a, a bit of a learning opportunity. So, joining us now is Kwantlen psychology instructor Dear Bat and Douglas College philosophy instructor uh, Michael Picard talking about a piece that they've written in the Vancouver Sun newspaper about. This thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Thank you very much uh, for having us, Ghar. I'll talk. I'll start with you first of all. Why do you think this is happening at this at that level of post secondary institutions?
7: Um, there are several reasons, and one is the availability. The opportunities are out there. As we know that the digital technology has opened up a new world, lots of uh, exciting outcomes for learning and teaching, but also. Lots of opportunities uh, for uh, criminal activities, as we know. And cheating is just one of them. It's very tempting what's available out there. And also a lot of it is at stake. Uh, Students um, are uh, struggling to make sure they get good grades, to get ahead in life. And uh, so pressures may mount. And when it's something very easy that seems so clear, the avenue is right in front of you,
2: that can be very tempting. So, Michael, from your perspective, then, is there something that we should be doing better to approach the situation to talk to students about this?
0: Well, I think uh, the things we have been doing traditionally work, but we also need to do more things to deal with the new situation. So, as the cheaters develop new technological means to cheat, like buying essays or Um, having people write essays for you um, or um, there are translators and all sorts of things that they can use to change wording, uh, make it hard to detect. So when there are ways that we can respond to these new kinds of activities, but some of the most effective ways are really uh, the most traditional ways of just like being there for students, showing uh, what, Hard work and uh, serious uh, intellectual integrity looks like when you're investigating things.
2: You wrote it. Yeah, you wrote in your piece here as educators, we need our students to choose honesty. Michael, I'll start with you. How do we do that?
0: Well, I mean, you can't really control anybody's choice, but you can set up the options for them and you can set up the consequences. Um, you can set expectations, and you can show them that there are, uh, you know, negative results if they uh, if they get
2: caught. Uh. Gira, how about you? How do we how do we fix that? How do we get them to choose the right thing to do?
7: Right, I think it's a two prong approach. Uh, one way is to set up our assessment um, uh, items, the um, assignments, etc., in a way in a in a some innovative ways so that. It cannot simply be copied from somewhere um you know so the uh, instructors are already doing that across universities now come up with some novel ideas so that it's kind of uh, exciting for students uh, they would be inspired to do their own thinking reflective thinking so that's just one way that you modify the way the traditional assessment uh, items were presented to students and the other one is, as Michael pointed out, is that we cannot really impose and say, be honest. I mean, that doesn't work. Right. If that works, there will be no problem in the world. It cannot be simply taught. But somehow uh, make it uh, exciting for students and show them the way that yeah. you can still get A+, plus, but doing it in an honest way.
2: But Gary, you also put a, a, a lot of this on instructors and educators as well, right? Like they have to also step up their game.
7: Absolutely. You, you can't just uh, bury your head in sand and uh, pretend that, no, this is the status quo. We are not going to change. And this is our academic freedom. We teach the way we want to teach. Hello. No, that's not going to work. The world is moving on and the digital world is here. It's the way to future. And we have to adapt. We absolutely have to adapt. Uh, the new generation is digital generation. And we do need
2: to do that. Now, Michael, is this a moment, do you think, for educators to rise to the challenge? I noticed that you, you were even quoting uh, Socrates here.
0: Yes, I, I mean, there's a couple of ways, uh, but um, certainly, um, you know, just uh, you, by example and modeling virtue, of course, that doesn't really uh, force anybody, uh, but, you know, the, the technology also creates opportunities and Although it makes some kinds of cheating easier, it makes other kinds harder. In this last semester, I, uh, because we're all online, I spent a lot of time one-on-one with students in Zoom calls. And when I'm working on students' writing, in you know, repeatedly over the term, they can't submit somebody else's writing and then revise it. So right. there are ways that the technology allows. Uh, or or reduces the opportunities as well and keeps people
2: honest. It's so fascinating. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Thank you so much. Appreciate that discussion. It's Garabat, a psychology instructor at Quantum Polytechnic University, and Michael Picarda teaches philosophy at Douglas College. Essentially, the onus is on students and educators right now to do more about the online cheating that we are seeing at the higher levels of the post-secondary institutions. We just need to rethink how we approach that situation. Elementary and high school kids right across the province are back in their classrooms today, even though many parents expressed reservations about that. There was even a petition that was making the rounds, about 20,000 signatures on there to put off the return to school after winter break. But classes are still going ahead. Parents are concerned about information. Is there enough of it? Uh, The lack thereof. Just take a look at what's happening in the Surrey School District this morning, where Earl Marriott Secondary has something like, what, 50 cases, five classes involved there and parents are still struggling to find out more about that. The information didn't even get updated for a lot of people until last night. Now, Jens von Bergman is the founder of a data analysis firm called Mountain Math, and he's concerned as well that parents can't access the information they need to decide when to keep their children at home, which is what authorities always say to parents, right? If you're uncomfortable, keep your child at home. Hard to do that when you don't know everything that's going on. So Jens joins us now to talk more about this. Thanks for being here.
8: Thanks for having me on.
2: What do you think about this today? I imagine parents are quite nervous, some of them are, about returning their kids to school.
8: Right, so um, it, it's a difficult situation. We've been uh, we've seen a decline in cases um, starting from about um, mid or in, in, at, um, sometime in November, and cases have come down a bit. But we don't have data on what's happened after Christmas. The last three, four days of data, we, we just don't have. We're the only province that's not releasing this data before a Monday morning. And um, now we're in this, this situation where after Christmas, uh, we're worried about um, maybe there'll be a bump in numbers. Uh, we have a situation that's more complicated now with possibly a new variant that we don't really know if it has taken a full hold yet in BC. And um, the case numbers are still quite high, um, and we're sending the kids back to school, and um, everybody's worried. Um, for some areas, it's probably not that big a, a deal. If we're looking at the island, for example, mm-hmm. where the, the case the spread is quite low. But um, Surrey, as you mentioned, um, still has fairly high spread, and so does Abbotsford right now. And so the, the question is, how do we, how do we deal with this? Um, yeah. The measures that work on the island... Do the same measures also work in Syria? And I'm not so sure. I think when um, schools that have had, say, over 20 exposure letters in the last um, half year, um, something else needs to happen there. We can't Mm -hmm. just go on and have one, two or three exposure letters a week.
2: Right. Now, Jens, I know you're a data analysis person. So given the information that we do have, what's out there on the BCCDC website and the different school districts, what, what do you see happening in some districts out there?
8: Well, so the data that we have is quite out of date by now. So it, it's really hard to say what's happening now. Um, what we do know is what happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, and what we do see is still fairly high levels of community spread. It is, It has been dropping, which is good, but it's still at levels where um, we know we will get school exposures and some schools will get them fairly regularly.
2: Right, but we're not getting enough information, you're saying, for parents to make that decision about, mm, maybe I'd be more comfortable keeping my child at home.
8: Right, at this point, we don't know. It would be nice if we, for example, would just simply have school district level Community spread the numbers, and we had have regular updates. So, uh, what is, for example, right now the level of community spread? Um, say, just even if it's a seven day average, but up to date for Surrey school district, we don't know.
2: Right, because that case in Earl, the Earl Marriott situation sounds very concerning. Like, if I were a parent with a child in that school, I'd probably be thinking about staying home.
8: Yeah, so it's also not so clear. I've looked a little bit at, at what the information there is, like when were those cases, um, what's the time frame here, how did this all come together, um, what's going on now. We, we, It's it's really hard to make decisions. So in B.C., we have this situation where, um, in many ways, as you pointed out, we're basically asking, say, parents with vulnerable family members to kind of um, just... Um, protect themselves right we right. as a society we haven't kept those numbers down to protect everyone we have allowed them to rise and so we ask these people to protect themselves and and we don't give them the information to do so in a way
2: so what would, would work better difficult. then like what what should the government be adapting here for parents um
8: well i think the first thing is the recognition that what works in a school where community spread is really low. It's not necessarily the same thing that works in a school where community spread is high. And we have to have additional layers of measures in schools where exposure winds pop up regularly. At some point, we might actually have to think about remote learning for those schools and, um, and also support remote learning for parents that make the choice just based on their personal risk tolerance. So right now, we, we don't, we have to decide at the beginning of the year, are we taking all classes remote or are we going all in school? But we don't have a good options where parents can say it's too hot right now. The cases are too high. I can't risk it. I want to take my kids out for two right. weeks.
2: So just a little That's bit more flexibility is what you're saying, though, right? Like if a parent be able to say that I'll be home for two weeks, I just need those options for a couple of weeks.
8: That's right. So if I'm here, um, say the, the grandparents are in the same household and um, they, they are uh, maybe another immune compromised person in my household. And I, I just need more flexibility, more options to deal with this as situations change. And I would also hope maybe that um, as a teacher um, where I really don't have that flexibility, where I can say, OK, maybe this is the time where we go and have masks in the classroom. Um, like they right. do in some other provinces, or this is the time where we're just going to have, we're going to split this class in half, half stays home, half in class, and somehow we figure out how to, how to make that work, which logistically is challenging, but if we can't keep schools safe, if we have exposures popping up left and right in the school, um, we have to adapt somehow.
2: All right, Jens, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for Jens van Bergman, who is the founder of the data analysis firm Mountain Math, he has a PhD in mathematics, he's been breaking down the numbers and he says really there's not enough information, not enough data to send kids back to school. There was the petition, twenty thousand signatures, to delay the start of the school year after winter break. Uh, None of that seemed to work. The reopening of schools is going ahead. We're talking about K to 12 here. Post-secondary is a different situation depending on the institution. But kids are heading back to the classroom today. If you're a parent or a teacher, you want to weigh in on this, you can just email me, simi at cknw.com.